Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Ukrainian President Zelensky makes a surprise White House visit. What Biden announces as some Republicans question more taxpayer money sent to Ukraine. The House January 6th committee plans to release its full report tomorrow, a delay by one day. What can we expect to see in it? A House committee released documents showing how much former President Trump paid in federal income tax during his presidency. Meanwhile, the committee says the IRS failed to pursue mandatory audits of Trump while he was president. Elon Musk says he'll step down as Twitter CEO after a majority of users polled said they want that. Plus, analysis on Twitter's core issue. Is it Musk or is it something else? And in California, the governor and a county sheriff declare a state of emergency. The community responds to the recent 6.4 magnitude earthquake. been 18 months of investigation and the House January 6th committee plans to release their full report tomorrow, a delay from the original deadline today. The panel is expected to detail specific findings and criminal referrals against former President Trump and others. NTD's Arlene Richards has more on what to expect. After more than a year and a half of public hearings, witness testimonies and information gathering, the House January 6th committee has delayed the release of its full report to Thursday instead of Wednesday. It's expected to lay out findings to support its conclusion that former President Trump is responsible for the Capitol breach that occurred on January 6, 2021. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transfer, transition of power under our Constitution. In a nearly 160-page executive summary released on Monday, the committee lists 17 specific findings that detail allegations against the former president, including purposely disseminated false allegations of fraud related to the 2020 presidential election, refusing to accept the lawful result of the 2020 election, and plotting to overturn the election outcome. Other findings accuse Trump of conspiring with others. Former President Trump did not engage in a plan to defraud the United States acting alone. He entered into agreements, formal and informal, with several other individuals who assisted him with his criminal objectives. The summary also claimed that before January 6th, neither the intelligence community nor law enforcement knew the full extent of the ongoing planning by President Trump, John Eastman, Rudolph Giuliani, and their associates to overturn the certified election results. As before, we don't try to determine all of the participants in this conspiracy, many of whom refuse to answer our questions while under oath. Republican Representative Scott Perry responded to a subpoena by the committee saying this political witch hunt is about fabricating headlines and distracting Americans from their abysmal record of running America into the ground. He called the committee an illegitimate body. He was referred to the Ethics Committee for defying the subpoena. The J-6 committee sent the DOJ a criminal referral for Trump, alleging obstruction, conspiracy and insurrection. 
Trump responded on Truth Social, these folks don't get it that when they come after me, people who love freedom rally around me. It strengthens me. Arlene Richards, NTD News. The House Ways and Means Committee says that former President Trump and his wife paid around $1.8 million in federal income tax during his presidency and that the IRS failed to pursue mandatory audits of Trump. An overview of former President Trump's tax returns released by the House Ways and Means Committee shows that Trump and his wife Milena paid almost $1.8 million in federal income tax over the course of his presidency. The committee on Tuesday voted to release Trump's tax returns. There being 24 eyes and 16 no's, the motion to submit the committee report to the House is agreed to and the documents are ordered reported to the House. The full tax returns have not been released yet, but the Democrat-controlled committee published a report and some documents that reveal details about the former president's income and taxes paid. The documents show that from 2015 through 2020, the Trumps jointly reported millions of dollars in income in each of those years. For most of the period in question, however, that was more than offset by losses, with Trumps reporting a negative adjusted gross income in four of the six years. With those losses and the application of tax credits and excluding items like self-employment taxes, the number came down to a net tax of around $1.8 The full tax returns are expected to be released within several days. A few days ago on Truth Social, Trump said, You can't learn much from tax returns, but it is illegal to release them if they are not yours. Congressman Kevin Brady, the top Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee, opposed the release of Trump's tax returns. He argued that the information contained in such disclosures could not be abused by political opponents. Shortly before Tuesday's session, he said it's the power to embarrass, harass, or destroy Americans through disclosure of their tax returns. The committee on Tuesday also revealed that the IRS failed to pursue mandatory timely audits of Trump during his presidency. An IRS requirement from 1977 mandates audits of a president's tax filings. The IRS only began to audit Trump's 2016 tax filings in 2019, more than two years into Trump's presidency and just months after Democrats took control of the House. However, there was no suggestion that Trump sought to directly influence the IRS or discourage the agency from reviewing his tax information. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Following a last-minute announcement, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in D.C. to meet with President Biden. NTD's Iris Tao has more on what's announced. Clad in his trademark sweatshirt and cargo pants, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came to the White House on a surprise visit. It's the first time he's left his country since Russia's invasion 300 days ago. It's an honor to be by your side. All my appreciations from my heart, from the heart of Ukrainians. Meeting President Biden in the Oval Office, Zelensky thanked him for the billions of dollars in aid. He also thanked Americans whose tax money funded that. Thanks from our just ordinary people to your ordinary people. 
The visit comes as administration announced today another $1.8 billion in military aid to Ukraine. And for the first time, the U.S. sending Kyiv a Patriot air defense system, marking a major escalation in U.S. support. Russia, meanwhile, has already warned the sending a missile defense system as advanced as the Patriot will be deemed a major provocation. But the White House says while Biden wants to be robust in his support, he's not seeking a direct war with Russia. And today at a joint presser after the two met, Biden and Zelensky said, What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. While Biden's vow and continued support, a Wall Street Journal polling finds Republican voters increasingly skeptical of aid to Ukraine. And House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy has said his party will not write a blank check for the country. Meanwhile, Congress is currently considering a funding package that includes another $45 billion in fresh aid to Ukraine. Lawmakers are racing to pass it by Friday, though some Republicans are trying to block it. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Elon Musk says he will resign as chief executive of Twitter once a replacement has been found. That's after a poll he launched on Sunday resulted in Twitter users calling for him to step down. Musk says he will give up the Twitter CEO post, quote, as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take on the job. He says he will then turn his focus to running the software and server teams. Calls from Wall Street for Musk to step down had been growing for weeks. Some Tesla shareholders have questioned his focus on the social media platform. They wonder if it's distracting him from properly leading the electric vehicle business, where he's key to product design and engineering. And the FBI has responded to Elon Musk's release of the so-called Twitter files. The statement reads in part, quote, It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. And while at least 10 million users voted for Musk's step down, earlier today I spoke with a man who says the problem may not be Musk himself, but the way that we've been conceptualizing Twitter to start with and how it's managed based on that concept. The co-founder and CEO of New Founding, Nate Fisher, lays out a possible path towards valuing and fostering trust in the digital age. Nate Fisher, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Elon Musk has been accused of hypocrisy when it comes to free speech on the platform, but you're saying the problem is in even thinking of Twitter as that public square, and instead we should think of it as a proxy emotion. Could you explain that? Sure. So I think a lot of people analogize Twitter to a public square. A lot of the functions that we see happening there are functions that we associate with the public square, but it's fundamentally a different medium. It doesn't behave like one. So if you think of a public square, no one goes to a town square and shouts things into the crowd and hopes that people are going to repeat it across the, uh, across the square and more and more people will repeat it and that's how it gains attention. That's just not how, that's not how that works. Yet that's how it works on Twitter with retweets and likes. So what you realize is if it's fundamentally different, what is it? And what Twitter is, is fundamentally, it's something that acts more like, a, a, another term that's been used is hive mind. It acts like a collective that directs your attention in ways that are uh, that are much more like what your emotions do. It's really a collective emotion in a sense, in that way. And so once you understand that, you realize that it's a, it's a problem that you need to think about differently. There's there's different ways that you're going to successfully monetize it. There's going to be uh, there's going to be attempts uh, to solve things like censorship that are just not go or solve things like uh, uh, spam 
and uh, mobs that are not going to work if you think of it like a public square. And there's going to be a, a different class of solution there. So that's what we were attempting to present there. And, and you've said that Twitter needs a credibility filter. And your company, New Founding, has laid out a multi-step plan for that mechanism that could serve that purpose. Could you tell me more about that? Yes. So our what we've been thinking about in many, many contexts, really, is the nature of trust and the nature of credibility in a digital environment. Fundamentally, uh, you look at most online networks, and there's very little in the in the way of trust. Very few social media, there's very few social media platforms you think of where you think, I trust that as a source of information. That platform itself knows how to identify trustworthy people. That just hasn't succeeded in digital. And so what we think about is, what we spent a lot of time thinking about is, how would you build something that successfully brokers trust like that? And what we uh, what we came up here with here was, Twitter has a lot of different people, has a wide range of opinions on it. Some of them are credible, some of them are not credible. Twitter can be a valuable source for finding credible opinions, but it also, but it, it does a really inconsistent job of highlighting who's credible. It, it, it is actually pretty good at highlighting interesting and credible information, but it's also really, really effective at highlighting uh, mob-style information, which in many ways is the opposite of that. And with the right approach to credibility, Twitter could actually do a lot more of the former. And as a result, it could actually do a lot more to incentivize the contribution of information that is higher and higher quality and really start replacing that. The best of human communities, which comes from trusted interactions, that comes from the trusted exchange of information, is largely absent from, uh, from our online engagement, from life in the digital age. And so we're trending in a direction that I think is sort of a dumbing down of society. And that's, uh, that's extremely costly in many domains. And so what do you think an ideal version of Twitter would look like, ultimately? So an ideal, so Musk made a point, he had a tweet where he said that it should be the uh, top source, I believe, of credible information on the internet, the most credible source on the internet. And imagine if you could go to Twitter and whatever domain you're in, whatever you're interested in following, you are able to see some of the most interesting interesting and credible pieces of uh, commentary or, or pieces of information that are being shared. And, and Twitter does a great way of both allowing you to go and prove your credibility in spaces. So if you go there, you're going to be rewarded for the sharing of credible information. And right now, you're probably rewarded for stuff that's a little closer to clickbait in many cases. Uh, often, my, my most engaged tweets are not what I would consider the highest quality pieces of information I share. Uh, imagine if I were rewarded for sharing valuable, credible information. Uh, that's going to elevate me. And simultaneously, if you go to Twitter, you're able to, and kind of whatever you're looking for, you're able to find things that have been elevated in a way that, again, uh, point you to credible information that you otherwise wouldn't be able to find. That would make it an incredibly valuable conduit for, uh, for both elevating your own status by doing something that's socially beneficial and uh, a, a source of information for people in a world where I think Trust in, trust in conventional institutions is collapsing and people are desperate for alternative sources of trust. Twitter could be that. Indeed. Thank you so much, Nate Fisher, co-founder and CEO of New Founding. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Today was supposed to mark the end of border rule Title 42, but now it's in limbo after the Supreme Court stepped in. The White House aims to scrap this temporary rule next week. Now, senators on Capitol Hill are calling for bipartisan solutions to quell an expected surge at the border. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us to break it down. 
So Title 42, since it's been enacted, it has allowed Border Patrol agents to return roughly 30% of all illegal crossers back to Mexico. But this policy has always been a temporary one. And once it ends, most migrants will be processed under Title 8. Now, Title 8 is a U.S. law that technically requires illegal immigrants to be detained until their immigration proceedings have finished. But the Biden administration has been releasing the majority of migrants into the country under a humanitarian parole provision, which has allowed them to obtain work permits immediately. This has led to some Republicans on Capitol Hill accusing the administration of incentivizing illegal immigration. Here are some of those comments from today. This was not happening under the Obama administration. It is happening under this administration. The law is the same. The difference is this administration is not enforcing the law. This comes as border communities are already preparing for the worst. For example, in Texas, they sent National Guard troops to construct razor wire fences to prevent uh, the expected uh, flow of illegal immigrants from crossing there. And in the Yuma sector in Arizona, which is the sector that has, has the highest number of in-custody migrants, is now having to release those illegal immigrants into their streets because the surrounding sectors are expected to quickly reach full capacity. Yuma's mayor actually wrote us in an email uh, saying that he recently met with the White House where he was told that his community would not be reimbursed for the costs they've already spent for transportation, food, and housing these illegal immigrants. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema highlighted this issue in a fiery Senate floor speech. Here's a look. The city of Tucson has already accepted over 15% of its total population just in migrant releases since April of this year. And in Yuma, the threat of street releases persists every single day, including today. This crisis is not new. It's one that has progressively worsened year after year, administration after administration, due to the federal government's repeated failures to address our broken border and immigration system. We've heard a lot about what's in Congress's recent omnibus spending bill, but what's not in it? One measure that didn't make it in is called the Equal Act. It would have changed the legal discrepancy between cocaine and crack use. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. In the 1980s, then-Senator Joe Biden helped write the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, and it was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. It established different penalties for two forms of the same drug, cocaine. Crack cocaine and powder cocaine are chemically identical, but crack is cheaper, and smoking it produces a quicker effect, which also dissipates more quickly, leading to more abuse. The act mandated a minimum sentence of five years without parole for possession of five grams of crack cocaine. One would need to have 100 times as much powder cocaine to receive the same punishment. This disparity was reduced to 18 to 1 by the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. And in 2018, former President Trump signed the First Step Act, which allowed the Fair Sentencing Act to be used retroactively. In other words, it could reduce the sentences of current prisoners serving lengthy time for cocaine sentences. When Donald Trump came out with the First Step Act, Big shout out to Donald Trump for the first step back. I don't care what nobody say. Unique Mecca Audio, a digital creator and author, explained how he was released by the first step act on Vlad TV. 
the Democrats and, uh, and Joe Biden with Bill Clinton, they the one that wrote in these crazy laws with the mandatory minimum that put all of us black people in jail for nonviolent crimes. But Donald Trump came in and he straightened all that out. Because crack cocaine is more often smoked by black people, many have attributed it to racial discrepancies in sentencing, including Attorney General Merrick Garland. He issued a statement on Friday saying, the crack powder sentencing differential is still responsible for unwarranted racial disparities in sentencing. Garland also called on Congress to pass the Equal Act, which would take away the sentencing disparity altogether. And on Saturday, Congressman Kelly Armstrong explained on Roland Martin Unfiltered that the act had support from both sides. U.S. House of Representatives passed it, I think, 361 to 66 over a year ago. Uh, that means the majority of Republicans supported a one-to-one -one disparity and appropriate and doing the, and doing retroactivity as well. But the Senate didn't include the measure in the omnibus spending bill, and we'll have to start over on it next year. Jason Perry, NTD News. And in Northern California, after the 6.4 magnitude earthquake struck Tuesday, both the governor and local sheriff declared a state of emergency for Humboldt County. And nearby businesses are trying to help the community. NTD's David Lamb reports. Businesses in the small California city of Rio Del began cleaning up after the 6.4 magnitude earthquake struck early Tuesday morning. Harry Smith, a garden store owner, said the quake didn't feel like a roller coaster, but... It was just up, down, and sideways, and about 20 seconds, and that's a long time. The earthquake resulted in two fatalities and injured nearly a dozen people in Humboldt County, just hours north of San Francisco. A lot of damage, as you can see, some structural stuff back there, where you can actually see the shift of what happened. Humboldt County is a largely rural area known for its redwood forests, local seafood, lumber industry, and dairy farms. It's also known for frequent earthquake activity. This is the main, one of the main stores. There's only like three stores in this little town, and everybody gets everything from here. Local authorities issued a water advisory for the cities of Rio Del and Fortuna, which were miles away from the earthquake. They warned residents in the area to boil all drinking water for 60 seconds to kill bacteria due to damaged water systems. Most of the 72,000 county customers who lost electricity had power restored by the evening. But 14,000 were still out of power early Wednesday. Yeah, so we're trying to donate to the community as best we can with permission from our higher-ups. And, and uh, we've been open since 6 and it's been non-stop. You know, I put a little post out that said we have emergency PVC, uh, plumbing, electrical, and uh, it's got out. So uh, we're here for the community and, the community's, you know, we're, we all, we're all in this together, so. The American Red Cross established a temporary overnight shelter with food and water in the city of Fortuna. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Coming up, the Taliban is banning women from attending universities and it's drawing condemnation from the international community. And in baseball news, the New York Mets have stunned the league with their latest free agent signing. NTD's Dave Martin has the details. That and more coming up.
Now turning our attention to the Middle East. The Taliban is banning women in Afghanistan from attending universities. And the U.S. is responding. The Taliban on Tuesday asked both private and public universities to deny access to all female students. Afghan girls have also been barred from attending secondary schools since the Taliban seized Afghanistan in August 2021. Following the latest rule, the highest level of education that Afghan girls can attain now will be the sixth grade. The U.S. State Department condemned the rule. This unacceptable stance will have significant consequences for the Taliban and will further alienate the Taliban from the international community and deny them the legitimacy they desire. The State Department added that it will look to see what more it can do to hold the Taliban accountable. After the Taliban's new rule came out, protests broke out at a university in Afghanistan. And we'll keep you updated as that story progresses. Now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Carlos Correa is now reportedly a New York Met after the star shortstop agreed to a 12-year, $315 million contract. Now, this is a stunning twist on a number of levels. Last week, Correa agreed to a 13-year, $350 million deal with San Francisco, which was the fourth biggest deal ever. But then yesterday, the Giants mysteriously canceled a press conference to introduce him as rumors swirled that Korea failed his physical. Just hours later, then, the New York Post dropped a bombshell report that not only was Korea's deal with San Francisco suddenly off, but that he'd already pivoted to sign this deal with the Mets. Now, these are the same Mets that already have the two highest paid players in the game, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, already even an all-star shortstop in Francisco Lindor, who has a $300 million contract himself, and have already handed out more than $800 million in contracts this offseason. Meanwhile, their projected payroll of more than $380 million for next year is a record, while their projected payroll luxury tax alone of over $100 million is more than what a third of the teams in the league will spend on their entire payroll. And moving to the NFL, sad news as Hall of Fame running back Franco Harris passed away. Harris was a big part of the Steelers' dynasty in the 70s, making the Pro Bowl in each of his first nine seasons and helping the Steelers win four Super Bowls. He's most remembered for his part in the iconic Immaculate Reception, which was recently voted the greatest play in NFL history. Harris was 72. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has 11 games planned, featuring a Bucks-Cavs matchup that features two of the top three teams in the East. And finally, for you hockey fans, seven games in the NHL are on tap, featuring leading scorer Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers playing at the Dallas Stars. And that's it for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.